Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Tokyo, Toronto and Zurich. Today we're interviewing a very special guest, Pamela Chestek, who is a member of Open Source Initiative's Board of Directors. And she's going to talk to us about her work on intellectual property law and open source licenses. We also have Brent Phillips, humanitarian AI's organizer and producer of our podcast series here with us as well. Welcome, Pamela and Brent. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great. We've kicked off this series on intellectual property law, and you've been involved in this area. Can you give us a little bit of background on what you do, both at Open Source Initiative and your own law firm, Chestec Legal? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I've been a practicing attorney for about 20 years, and I've spent that entire time in what's called the intellectual property area of law, although I do do patents. I am a copyright and trademark lawyer, and I've been working in open source specifically for about the past 11, 11, 12 years. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am. It's a really fascinating area to be working in. I really enjoy it, which is why I keep doing it. And what got you into um, specifically this open source initiative? And it'd be very interesting, especially for our listeners and audience, who's probably more interested in the humanitarian side of things. But your um, background is is much broader. So we'd really love to hear, you know, the broad applications you're working on and, and perhaps figure out how to connect it to humanitarian applications uh, further down our conversation. That would be great. Yeah, sure. Um, So it's an interesting question. Intellectual property lawyers are trained to be very maximalist in their thinking that ownership is good and more ownership is even better. And then, and, and that didn't entirely sit well. It wasn't entirely consistent with my own belief system. And I had the great opportunity to get a job working at a company called Red Hat, which does um, open source operating systems and many other open source types of software and found um, a sort of ideological, philosophical home in the, in the open source field that was much more closely aligned with sort of my personal beliefs about the value of, of copyright, copyright trademarks, um, how they you know, how there may be disadvantage in, ex- in exerting too many rights in them. So after working at Red Hat, I, I stayed in the field. So I'm on the board of the Open Source Initiative. It's uh, an elected, the board members are elected. And I wanted to participate in the Open Source Initiative in part because I, I am a lawyer who understands the open source licenses. There are not a lot of us who, who are highly skilled in that area. Um, and so I felt that I could contribute to the open source initiative's mission of reviewing licenses and maintaining the list of what are uh, approved open source licenses. And also with its larger mission of education on open source, on the value of open source, sort of some proselytizing about open source and the, and the, the benefits of collaboration, uh, transparency, you know, working together to solve problems and create systems that, that everyone can benefit from rather than 
these sort of lock in proprietary ownership models. That's really interesting. And I see here that the term open source was created at a strategy session held, I think, early February 1998 in Mountain View. So, Pamela, what's open source software for the layperson? So open source software for the layperson, of course, you have to understand that software is protected by copyright. And by law, when you own the copyright, you have the right to exclude others from using your copyrighted work. So what an open, so an open source license is a license that is designed to allow others to use, modify, and distribute the software without seeking any, any other uh, permission from you. So it's made available to the license, any, under a license, anyone can use it. They don't have to ask you to use it, and they get to basically use the software in, in very in beneficial ways. So the, so the open source definition is, has 10 principles that when we're evaluating licenses, we look at them through the lens of these, of these 10 principles to decide whether or not the license meets all of these, all of these criteria. And if, and these criteria are designed to do what I just described, which is the free use distribution and modification of software. Um, so if these licenses permit that kind of use, then we, then we do characterize them as open source initiative approved licenses. And there is, uh, there's a, a lot of industry. Every company uses open source software and they're, it's a very beneficial model for creating software. So no more do we have these companies sort of writing code line by line by line and keeping all of that in a proprietary way. Software is not developed that way anymore. It's developed in a collaborative model. Mm, that sounds super important. And, you know, what's been revolutionary and important about open source from your experience, apart from the collaborative that you just mentioned, any examples that, that have stood out or stand out? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people don't realize that this collaborative development model that where everybody benefits, you know, the rising tide floats all boats, as the saying goes. I think a lot of people don't realize how, how pervasive that is in their everyday life. For example, the Android phone is built on an, the Android operating system on your phone is, is an open source operating system. So that's why you see so many manufacturers using uh, with Android phones is because the license allows them. So we as consumers have much more choice in, in what we're, what we have available to us. That's one example of Firefox. A browser is another example of open source software, and, and the Linux operating system is another one. People who aren't in the computer industry may not be as familiar with that, but it's an operating system. Windows is an operating system, and as um, Apple has an operating system, Linux is, another, is, a third, is a third operating system, and it's used very much in servers. So all of the, you know, every, every website Every, all of these huge server farms are all running Linux software, uh, and that also is under an open source license. So you may not see it directly, but it's open source software is running everything that we do. Thanks for that background. You mentioned earlier you, you kind of got involved with Red Hat and, and open source. Do you want to just 
talk a little bit more in depth about what got you interested in intellectual property law related to software and open source. And then maybe we can go into more about open source uh, initiative as well. I have a, an arts background. My undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Fine Arts in technical theater. And, and so I always was drawn to copyright in particular. I, I chose software in a sense, not, not because I was so brilliant, but I was working in a different industry and looked at software and thought, hmm, that looks like a growth industry to me. And so I, uh, I got a job at a, at a software company and haven't left software since, have stayed in the industry since then. So it, was, it wasn't so much that I felt a huge affinity to software to start, although I will say that my, I come from a family of engineers. My father was, a, was an aerospace engineer and, and I, my brother, I have one brother who's a computer scientist. So it wasn't entirely foreign to me. We had this, you know, we, I had a Radio Shack computer at home, my dad, and my dad had one. So it wasn't entirely foreign to me, but it, it took me some time to get into software. And, and as I said, once I, once I was working there, then I had this opportunity to, to go to Red Hat. And one other, one other thing that keeps me involved in open source software is it's just a really interesting social environment. It's a very strong community. It uh, has, it's, it, there's, it's a very strong sort of based on relationships. So I just also found the sort of social aspect, not, you know, not going out to drink beer aspect necessarily, but that's fine too. But just, just sort of the collegiality and, so, and social, um, social cohesiveness of this field to be really interesting. I think it is something very special about open source. And I, I do believe that that's because you are collecting people who are interested in working towards the greater good through collaboration rather than sort of writing software mine 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 instead they are they they are thinking of the social good as a whole so i just i find that really interesting absolutely great fit and then having that arts background just bringing in that sensibility and and coming from a family of engineers of course um (laughs) wow what's been memorable about those times It, it sounds like quite the um the time at Red Hat to be involved in op- the open source revolution. Anything you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, I loved Red Hat. I continue to think it's a, a really wonderful company. Very special. I hope everybody at some point in their life works at a place where things just seem to click right and and you feel like it's a place that, that is right for you and fits you. And and that you know, you I had wonderful colleagues there, very, very smart lawyers that I that were I was very proud to work with every day. So it was a very a very special time. I was very happy to have this opportunity, to, and it was you know was a very sort of a pivotal moment in my in my personal life and also in my career. Brilliant. We mentioned OSI earlier. Um, what's important about AI? IP law or what should open source initiatives be interested in or concerned about? Well, one of the things that we're always thinking about is how does open source continue to provide the benefits that it has historically provided over the past 20 or so years since it's been recognized as a, a model 
how do, how does that continue to stay relevant? Uh, not not just relevant, but how does it continue to how do we continue to deliver on the benefits of this license model and all of that all that it brings as technology changes, as times change, as moral imperatives change. So so these are always on our radar and in our consciousness as as the OSI works on its mission of education on open source licenses and advocacy for open source licenses. Yeah. I know Brent's with us and he's probably itching to jump in and say something around Red Hat or open source initiative. Brent, is there something that... Yeah, actually, I was curious. Maybe you could share what the difference is between open source and what Red Hat does. And you mentioned the emerging field of open source. What's on the horizon for you and what are you concerned about? Um, so, I guess Red Hat is just a company that works on open source software. But I guess I can envision in the future there'll be companies that will develop enterprise-grade versions of humanitarian software. It's rather interesting to define what that is. But going back to OSI, you mentioned the future, what what you're looking at now in terms of concerns and interests. What are you talking about on the board of directors? What are you following and what's interesting to you and what are you concerned about and what do you see on the horizon? Yeah, sure. I will just clarify on Red Hat. So Red Hat is what what we sort of sort of casually call a, a pure play open source company, which is that all of their software is under open source licenses, and that's very very rare and uncommon. And uh, a lot of people will tell you that that's a unicorn that and nobody else has figured out how to make money from free software. But they've been incredibly successful company. So so they are you know they are a sort of a services based company in, in one sense, which is that their services are distributing software. So open source software can play different roles at different kinds of companies, depending on what the company is. So for example, Google writes and releases a huge amount of open source software, but their business model is not distributing software. They run their search business and all of their now many hundreds of kinds of businesses using software but they but they're not trying to monetize the software directly so their you know their business model is has a different kind of relationship to open source software and one that may foster an environment where we're sharing for them is beneficial because they can get the benefit of other people looking at and contributing and improving the software um, we talk about open source as if it's monolithic but in actuality it's used in all different ways by all different kinds of companies so yeah, so Red Hat being being one of the few companies that actually monetizes the software itself versus you know using it as a tool to build a business based on some other kind of revenue stream or business model. So in terms of what the OSI is looking at, you know one of the one of the things that 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 has had a high degree of attention more recently is ethical source licenses. So in these in these times, people have heightened awareness that people don't want to necessarily be contributing to or assisting companies whose missions, companies or governments whose missions they disagree with. And you know, we've seen at GitHub that there was a strong movement asking GitHub to terminate its, its agreement with ICE. 
and we're seeing we're seeing that more and more. We're seeing a lot more um, employees taking an interest in exactly who the clients of their employers are. And it used to be, I think it used to be much more sort of agnostic on that. And one of the principles in the open source definition is is no discrimination. And if you were to say the software cannot be used for for evil, we would not approve that as an open source license because it discriminates against a group of people. Particularly if you're working in the humanitarian field, you can understand how incredibly difficult it is to draw those kinds of lines on who is doing something beneficial and who is doing something clearly harmful. Um, you know, and, and can you make choices that filter out one or the other? So the open source initiative has, has had these, um, this issue has come up several times. I've probably been aware of the open source initiative and their work for maybe the past 10 years and um, have seen it come up once or twice during that time, but it's, but it's come up again more recently. And I think everybody, I think, you know, writing software isn't just a job anymore. It's, we all, I think a lot of us now have discovered or renewed or better understand our own moral imperative about ensuring that we live in a society that's fair to everyone, that's a, a righteous society, that's a good society, and thinking much harder about our own personal responsibility in ensuring that and what tools are available to us to um, ensure that we live in a, in, an, in, a, in a good society. So this is, some, but, but as I, you know, go back to where I started, which is, but it's an incredibly difficult question. How do you draw a line? How do you, you know, who is going to be the arbiter to say, this is good, this is bad. And, and should, is it the role of software to be, you know, should, should these rules be built into how software is used or distributed? So. Um, I can only say that it's a huge, it's a huge question and a huge issue, and we're nowhere close to an answer or a resolution or any kind of sort of understanding on what are appropriate steps to take or things to do in order to, to try to have a society that we're all happy and proud to live in. Pamela, what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and AI um, training and testing data sets and where the whole AI field is going from a, you know, sort of an open source initiative, open source licensing perspective? What's protectable and how are people leveraging licenses today on the sort of relative to AI and maybe looking forward to humanitarian AI? Yeah, um, so open source software is, really relatively easy compared to data. And, and the reason is, is that software is protected by copyright law around the world. And so we have a known mechanism for protecting it and for granting other people rights to, to use the software. So it's pretty easy. Data is much more difficult. And the reason is, is because data is not protected by any particular scheme and certainly not in any way that's universal throughout the world. So I can, you know, U.S. lawyer, so I know U.S. law better. So we say, we take glibly, <laughs> you know, and it's, we say facts are not copyrightable. 
So, you know, a collection of facts um, is not protected by, by any, any proprietary rights scheme. In, in that's one, you know, that's sort of a, a simplistic way of viewing it. The, the reality is, is that we do protect collections of information if there is some degree of creativity in the selection and arrangement of that content, which may or may not apply to the kinds of data that you're talking about. There may not be, you know, if you're, if, if you're vacuuming up all data, there is no creativity in the selection and arrangement because you, the coordination selection arrangement, because you vacuumed it all up. Um, so that puts by, on one hand, you could look at it and say, well, this is really terrific. There's no protection. There's no exclusive, nobody has exclusive rights in this data. So therefore, we should be able to use it. But but what people do instead is they impose contractual obligations that are um, limited by access to it. So so in exchange for getting access to it, they will say, okay, you know, there's it's not protected by any legal regime. But by contract, we're going to say if you use this data, we're going to force you to use you know to do X. We have to meet X, Y, and Z requirements, or you have to give us certain things or do certain things. Um, so, so it's this, and then when you get into that situation where you have different contracts controlling things, um, it's, you know, compliance with all of your obligations to all of the various providers of data um, gets, gets trickier, and then even trickier when we're talking about um, international data sets or data sets that are, come from more than one country because those are protected by different laws. So yeah, so data data is a, just a really difficult problem to solve because it does not have this sort of one one major scheme for protecting it that that's fairly universal throughout the world. Thank you for that. And it's interesting bringing up the parallel of what what you just said about copyright law, and um, it's really positive to hear you know that there are ethical kind of heightened awareness more purpose meaning and thinking about how writing software is what would you advise ai and and the the kind of really gray area of of data and how that's being defined you know how how can we protect that is it going back to who owns the data i mean are we are we going to go back to I'm not sure how should we be approaching that. The biggest issue I believe that we're being presented with is privacy. So it's not so much the protection of the data and the sharing of the data is secondary to me to the concerns about privacy of the data. And we were kind of chatting chatting earlier about how um, the GDPR has been instrumental, even though it's a European directive or regulation, a regulation, I guess. It's, you know, it's had an, a ripple effect into any company in the United States, certainly, who does any business in the EU um, now have to abide by these EU laws. So it's had this huge extraterritorial effect that comes from a, a structure, an architecture that is very different from how in the U.S. We, we have been thinking about privacy, um, which basically in the U.S. has been kind of non-existent. You, you know, you click through the little button that says, I agree, and, you know, just gave everybody, gave all of these providers all sorts of permission to use all sorts of information about you. 
So the GDPR, and then there's also a California law that was fairly recently passed that's somewhat similar to the GDPR. So these, this sort of new layer of privacy concerns is just adding even more complexity. If we already had, you know, if we already had complexity with data, now it's it's three times as complex because we then also have to, and rightfully so, be cognizant that the use of personal information deserves some respect. And it may not be possible to to use entirely sanitized information for some uses, but but we have to understand that when we are using personally identifiable information, that it's done with a great deal of regard for the person and uh, attempts to protect their interests. Yeah. What you just said reminded me of a, a recent interview we, we did with Daniel Dadani. He specializes in helping MIT students with launching startups um, that deal with intellectual property law issues. And he mentioned something about an AI that invented something and it didn't make it into being awarded the intellectual property, which was super interesting. And and it's a crossover from, you know, the... Um, the easy protected by copyright law and and the space of AI and and what you mentioned facts are not copyrightable and you know what's the identity or what what is um, being protected there is there anything we we need to be thinking about protecting there and why and how so we're being confronted um, various different countries are being confronted with the issue of whether or not artificially created. Um, intellectual property should be protected or whether it should be available to all. Uh, in the U.S., for example, there's the copyright law is that it has to be a human author. Um, so in the cases are sort of, you know, interesting. The, the case, one case it's based on is that someone claimed, someone said that the book that they had written or the, the work that they had written, they were directed by God to write it. Um, and, and it was God's words that the person was writing down and the, and the copyright office said, well, unfortunately, God's not a human. And so there's no copyright in this, in this work. So that's kind of the analogy we have, which maybe isn't, maybe isn't entirely close, but, but from that, we have this principle that, that authors must be human. So is, you know, is that, is that appropriate or not? And, and how does that, you know, how do you, how, at what level of abstraction does there have to be a human author? Because if you have a human author who created, for example, the software that's going to process data that results in something something new and different, at what level do you say, well, there's not a human author? There was at some point. There was the author who wrote the program that then maybe was trained um, that ended up with a with the ultimate outcome. So these are these are all interesting challenges. And the open source person in me would say. Copyright law and patent law were are in the are in the U.S. Constitution because there is this concept that people need to have um, exclusivity as a reward or else they won't create. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but if you know, but but there is no financial incentive for a non-human to create to create something. So should they that non-human also be entitled to the same? Um, 
exclusive rights or, or benefits of ownership that uh, you know that a human being would. So they're all these are all really interesting philosophical questions that I only you know I only know the questions. I have no idea what the answers are. Well, you've definitely shed a lot of light, and um, we're really really grateful for your views on what you've worked on with open source initiative and. Is there anything from Open Source Initiative that we haven't talked about that comes to mind that you think would be interesting to our humanitarian AI intellectual property law interview series? Um, only I only ask that people get involved with Open Source Initiative financial support. Of course, it's a it's a charitable nonprofit, so it's it's leanly funded and leanly staffed and. And we have a very big, very big shoes that we have to fill with a very lean staff. And in order to keep the message in the forefront on on the value of open source and the importance of open source to our society as a whole. So I would ask anybody who can support the OSI in these times to do that. That would be terrific. Great. Brent, is there anything you wanted to add? Any thoughts on what sort of questions we should concentrate on for our next interviewees? Um, let me think. I really am interested in sort of like how do you how do you maintain privacy, but but while also having data that's useful, and that's well outside of my field, <laughs> well outside of my knowledge. But uh, I would be I would be I think that's just a really interesting because it's a trade off. You know, if you have data that's too sanitized, that doesn't have enough detail, what good is it? Um, but at the same time, trying to respect, you know, we can't, we have this, this pretense that data can be anonymized and maybe so, but isn't some degree of granularity more helpful? Um, that and of course, I'm, of course, you're all over the sort of, you know, the bias implicit in machine, the bias that's in machine learning and how to correct for the bias um, through machine learning on data, on data sets. Those are the things that interest me. Absolutely important. That's what's great having someone like you coming from an arts background, working in software and intellectual property and being on the board of OSI. And thank you for all you're doing. And, and thank you for joining us, Pamela Chestick, and sharing your insights with us on humanitarian AI today. That brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.